Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. This is uh, a, uh, it's going to be a study of Israel in the Old Testament, Israel's history. We're going to start off with the beginnings of Israel and try to track it through all the way to the New Testament. Um, I have some thoughts about the objectives and parameters of this class. I wrote down, if you guys want to peruse through those, you can. I will not stand up here and read that because I always found it really boring whenever professors did that. So um, let's start off here. I'm going to read to you guys a, a section from 1 Corinthians. Paul writing to the church. I'm going to start in chapter 10. You, don't have, you can open to it if you want to. You don't have to. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil, as they did. And then skipping down... Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And let's start off here with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this word you've left us. I thank you for um, your faithfulness to Israel, and I thank you for using Israel to bring our Savior into this world. I thank you for all those who took time to be here. I pray you that you would bless this study. Guard me from error, and I just pray that you would reveal yourself, Lord, and that it would be useful and profitable. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So I hope by now all of you have picked up the notes. And like I said, all of the, these notes are a creation of my own, okay? The notes are not infallible. It's just some thoughts I had um, to help us, help guide us through this study. And today I'm going to take just a little bit of license here and actually go off the notes just a bit before we start, to take a moment to consider the question, to why, why study Israel's history? Okay. Why do I think, why, am I, why was I interested in that? Why do I think it'll be useful for us? Well, first of all, the Old Testament is very Israel-centric. Okay. It's not exclusively based on Israel, but it's heavily based on Israel. Israel's a good lens to look at the whole Old Testament. Okay. It's a good way to study it. Um, because, again, Old Testament is heavily based on that. Um, also, because I think we should study this because we live in a world where you don't hear about it quite so much as you hear about other sections of Scripture. Um, but we are assured in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we can't neglect the Old Testament. But I think the study of Israel and the chronological from its beginnings, the walk of Israel through the Old Testament, ending prior to the New Testament, is a, is a good way to organize your thoughts about the Old Testament. Okay? And it's also, um, it's also profitable if you can remember where in the overall picture and progression it occurs. Okay? So um, a lot of us have um, good knowledge about certain events in the Old Testament, and certainly, um, you know, we'll go through some sections where you're just like, oh, I've studied that. I know all about that. And praise God for that. Those parts for you will be review. But I think in taking in the whole story 
as much as we can to keep the flow of the story going, you'll also get a chance to discover some new parts or maybe review some parts that you haven't heard in a long time. I think that might be useful. Another reason we should study Israel's history in the Old Testament. The New Testament frequently references and quotes the Old Testament. Jesus and the apostles are very familiar with it, and many New Testament texts and arguments are based upon it. So, in the New Testament, a lot of times, we have to understand that when the New Testament was occurring, they didn't, the full scripture that they had was the Old Testament, okay? So, Jesus and the apostles didn't have, you know, the New Testament in front of them. This is unfolding in real time, but they did have the Old Testament. And we've heard Jeremy mention in sermons that Christ would argue to the word about the Old Testament texts. So these things have great value for us. Um, Another reason to study Israel in the Old Testament. Israel's history provides New Testament Christians with a framework and a context of how we are redeemed. I do not think that we could fully understand concepts such as God's righteousness, man's sinfulness, judgment, sacrificial atonement, and forgiveness without it. Um, I think that when we read the Old Testament, um, it will be amazed to see the connection, we'll be amazed at the connections we find pointing toward the New Testament. Things that we might take for granted, right? Because we've already read where it's going. It's like we've read the last, the last bit of the book. Um, but this part really sets it up and deepens our understanding. And the last, but certainly just the last one I'll include here, um, is, is just, again, some parts of it will be review. But I think we should study it because it's, it's a little easier sometimes. The books are shorter in many cases to pick up the New Testament and just go at it. But the Old Testament, you've got all this uh, uh, cadastry law, you've got all the parts that's about what part of the animal to sacrifice, you know, you've got some parts that are kind of uncomfortable. Israel's at war with, you know, these other people, there's atrocities committed. It can get a little different. So again, I think these are reasons why I wanted to do this study, and I hope you guys find it, uh, find it useful. So one more quick aside here before we get into the notes. Um, As a quick prelude, I'm sure that most of you guys are pretty familiar with this, but let's go through it here really quickly. We're going to start in the 12th chapter of Genesis with Abram, but very quickly, here's a prelude to our study. Genesis 1, God makes the world. We have the creation account. Genesis 2, God made man, so we all know where we come from and the role God played in that. Genesis 3, we have the fall which introduces these concepts and tropes of sin and uh, death as a result. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, which we start talking about um, an offering being given to God. And we also have a murder. Genesis 5 and 6, we deal with corruption, corruption all over the earth. And Noah builds a boat. So we're introducing themes of obedience to God and faith, but also of disbelief. And then in Genesis 7 and 8, we see how this plays out. The obedience and faith rewarded by surviving the flood. God wipes out most of humanity because of their sinfulness. So we're already getting a real picture about how seriously God takes sin. 
and how hard it is to deal with and man's propensity to fall quickly into a sinful condition. Genesis 9 and 10, Noah's descendants multiply. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Men disobey, and God scatters them across the earth. And now we have the beginning of nations. And that brings us, rather quickly, to Genesis 12, where we'll start today. Um, Don't mind the little box on the top of the uh, notes. I put some uh, little helps up there that you might find useful in, you know, some independent reading things that I thought were useful, and you'll also notice that um, I've bolded some terms and some characters that I want you to try and keep in mind, because remember, we're trying to do this as a chronological story, so it's, so it's key, you ask yourself, sort of organize your thoughts, where are we, who are we talking about, and hopefully the flow of these notes will help you a little bit. So anyway, just to start here, <clears throat> Abram is called by God, okay? So we're, we're starting with Abram. This is the beginning of Israel. He's the father of Israel. As best we can reconstruct the dates, Abraham was born around 2100 B.C. Quick note, I told you these notes here are not infallible, and I will not be dogmatic about the dates, okay? I've tried to find as much as I can... Um, consensus or some consensus among scholars about the dates, but on some points, some locations, some dates, there are no, there's not consensus, okay? So I've given you the the closest one I can. So who is Abram? Well, he's from the land of Ur. He is the son of Terah, and he's directly related to Shem, one of Noah's sons, as we talked about, with whom... If we, go, if we reconstruct the dates, he was likely a contemporary because Shem lived to be 600 years old. That's an interesting point we'll get to later, but it's not inconceivable that Abram lived in the time of someone who took a ride on the ark. That's interesting, right? I, I find that fascinating. And again, as best we can reconstruct the dates. Abraham is married to Sarai, but they have no, no children. So, what happens next? God calls Abraham. And I will very, very briefly... Yes? Uh, Abram was married to Sarai. Sarai, excuse me. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. We'll get there, but yes, thank you, sir. He is married to Sarai. And I'll say it right this time. Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God instructs Abram to leave his country, his father's house, and proceed to a new land to be revealed later. Abraham doesn't know where he's going. God's like, I'll tell you when you get there. I'll tell you where to go, and you'll know later. Um, And this is what is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord promises to make a great nation from Abram and to bless Abram personally. Um, he prom- and <clears throat> later, it will be revealed where he's going, and he promises to give the land of Canaan to Abram and his offspring. 
Abram, eventually, in Genesis 17, is more fully called to obedience, blamelessness, and circumcision. So I'm going to skip down here to one of our first questions and a thought that really is strong with me as we go into this. I think we have to consider what Abram knows about God at this point. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? What does Abram know about God right now? Mm-hmm. Yes. Surely this was a pretty well-known story throughout that world. So because of that history, there could have been some knowledge about, you know, a God, certainly knowledge of a flood, of this destruction. Um, so yes, that story feels, it would have felt very odd indeed if they didn't pass, if that wasn't passed down in some sense. We don't know if he knew that. Any other thoughts? What did Abram know about God? That's a good point. I would argue that Abram knew very... Sorry, Steve. Yes, by reconstruction of the dates. We just don't last like we used to. Word of mouth, yes. Mm-hmm. True. True. I. Th- mm-hmm. It's true. That is very true. I mean, we know that man has been scattered across the face of the earth after Babel, and languages have been divided, but that is possible. I think that you guys pointed out most of the important parts. There's oral tradition and stories about God that have been passed down and things that have happened. But I think it's important sometimes we have this um, ability as people to look back on history and view it through the lens of what we know now. Again, we are all New Testament Christians. We know about Jesus. We have all of Holy Scripture. We have the Old Testament and the law. We have the New Testament and the New Covenant. And I think that we do a disservice to some people in, in history when we look back on them and view it through what we know now. Because Abraham, Abram, later to be Abraham, um, there's some strange to our modern sensibilities things that are going to happen. God asked him to sacrifice his son. Abraham's like, okay. Abraham takes a, a, sla- a female slave to have a child. And you're like, well, that seems odd to us. Um, and yet we have to understand that Abram did not have near the knowledge that we have now about God. He's learning this all firsthand, okay? Abraham, God says, hey, you know, I want you to do this. And Abraham's like, okay, I think, you know, I'll do it. So I think, I think we don't, I think we need to, um, be right with you, Greg. I think we need to um, bear in mind as well that some of this stuff, when we read it, that Abram does not have all that we have, okay? Um, the New Testament church, we have the whole story. Abram is learning as he goes, okay? And does not have all of the laws and all of the scripture 
and does not know God. He doesn't know God's, at this point, he doesn't even know God's name. That's going to be revealed later. He doesn't know that. He doesn't have a concept of many of the things we do. So I think we just need to be fair to Abram and, and, and give him credit where, you know, for, for the faith that he showed and, um, and just understand that he was in a very unique position that most of us couldn't hardly imagine. And I think that's why the writer, well, Paul and the writer of Hebrews point to Abraham as such a, a supreme example of faith. Yes. Because given what little he knew about the Lord, what was revealed to him, and his obedience, you know, he's mm-hmm. twice in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 for both going out of Ur and Chaldeans and for, uh, as you mentioned, offering or being willing to offer mm-hmm. In Romans 4, 3, Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, it's not a small thing to be asked to leave your family and journey halfway across the known world, you know, and leave all that behind. Also, as we'll get to, Abraham was worshiping other gods when he was called by God. This is an important point, okay? So he's leaving a lot. Just put it that way. Also, I would uh, piggyback off what Greg said. I would. What's that? Yep, we'll get to it. It's in the notes. Um, Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So, like I said, we have to remember what Abraham knew and what he didn't know, Okay and give him credit for an immense, immense faith, knowing almost nothing else about God. And again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but for those of you who are curious, um, as best we know, this is where Abram was originally from. This is, I just colored it in some. This is Ur. That's what they call it. Um, this is where he starts, okay? For a time, he journeys up here. For a time, he's in Haran, and then he ends up in what they call Canaan, which is basically modern-day Israel, that area. Again, not to be dogmatic about it. There's the Euphrates River, the Tigris River. These are important rivers in the day. Um, and for those of you who you know, like geography, this is Iraq, okay? Iran, Saudi Arabia, and again, Israel and the Holy Land, Palestine, Syria, and all the other popular romantic getaways. Um, <laughs> So I just, it's a big move, okay? This is a big part of the known world. Abraham leaves, he comes all the way over here, and a big part of the rest of our story is actually going to occur up here in the northern part of Egypt and in the Sinai Peninsula, a lot of the wanderings down through here of Israel. So you have to understand, just enough on that point, but you have to understand that, you know, this was a, a massive move for Abraham. It was something he had to do in faith because he didn't understand God the way we understand now, and he didn't even know where he was going, all right? <clears throat> and what do we know of Abram's culture? We know that prior to God's calling of Abram, that he had served other gods. We find that in Joshua 24, 2, if anyone would like to look it up. Um, records, as best we know, indicate that the chief deity in Ur, which again was over here in this area, was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> was likely the Sumerian moon god. 
and I've heard it called nanar. I found other places it was called sin. Um, but basically, so Abram was worshiping other gods before God calls him. This is odd, and this leads us into our next question. The calculated dates, as we've mentioned, may indicate that we're as little as one generation removed from those who were on the ark. How is it possible that humanity is already serving other gods? I would love to hear an answer to that before I give you mine, because it's a puzzler. Anyone? We spoke, Steve spoke about it. We have the oral tradition. We're not that far because of the length of life of early, early humans. You know. There you go. Well, the, I, I think, yeah, first of all, we cannot possibly overestimate the evil of the human heart and the wickedness of it. Um, also, another concept that, again, I think historically makes a little bit of sense, and I, I found this as I was looking for an answer, is a concept called henotheism. I put it in your notes. And it's the idea that you serve, there's like one big God, but also other gods, okay? A practice not that uncommon in that world, in that time. Uh, polytheism was certainly the norm. Um, the idea of having one main God would have been very odd indeed to Abram or anyone else. So I think it is possible that um, when you combine the wickedness of the human heart with um, the sort of practice of taking on other gods, be like, well, we have a big God, but we have other gods, which soon becomes more gods. And, then, and as we know, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, is a jealous God. He does not share. He does not divide time, and he's not impressed by being one God among many. So, it's true. That's true. Yes. And, um, and again, I think we'll get to this more, but I think that points to the need for a covenant people um, to, to record this law and record these things. But again, getting ahead of ourselves here. So that's an interesting point, okay, is that Abram, Abram had worshipped other gods. He was part of a very different culture. He makes this massive move based on very little information, but certainly a move of faith in God. So famine forces Abram and his family to Egypt. This is the first time you might say that Israel went to Egypt. Abram instructs Sarai, I got it there, Greg, to tell the Egyptians that she is his sister, forming what will become sort of a shameful family tradition. But we'll get to that. That happens again. Um, he's <laughs> The Pharaoh is told of Sarai's beauty and takes her for himself. So apparently she was quite a stunner, and Abraham was worried about losing her. And sure enough, he did. And he was worried also about being harmed in the process. But, yeah, <laughs> Pharaoh makes Abram rich because of Sarai. So... In, in a way, um, Abram is already receiving blessings from God, though certainly in an odd way. But he's already, um, Abraham will grow, is already, but will grow to be a very rich, wealthy man. Um, this is the beginning of that process. And guess what? God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues. Again, the first time. This will also be a theme. And Pharaoh confronts Abram about his lie. I think 
the reading of the text supports that Pharaoh actually, in this instance, acted pretty honorably. He was like, you told me she was your sister. Why did you do that? You know, Pharaoh immediately returns Sarai and sends them away along with all their newly acquired wealth. Okay? Um, so that's a, an interesting point is that we've already been to Egypt once. We've already seen plagues on Pharaoh's household once. Um, Abraham is beginning to receive blessings of wealth. Um, there's, a, there's another question there. I don't want to pause on it too long. But it's, it's just the, uh, for what purpose did God call Abram? And what merits did Abram possess to warrant such a special position? What did Abram have? Why did God call Abram? Why not some other guy? Yeah, exactly. He said, we're not told. Because Abraham was a great man. <laughs> yeah, yes. I just want to, I, along with Abraham, giving Abraham his due, I also want, I don't want to make him like um, a superman on earth that God chose because he was already elevated. I mean, he's worshiping other gods. He's not brave in the way that he's willing to tell the Egyptians who his wife is. Um, he is chosen for God's purpose in, for God's reasons. We don't know. Um, we don't know why it was Abram, but we do know what God is going to do with Abram and his descendants. And it's the beginning, and again, we'll roll this out in the coming weeks, of God's plan for salvation. Because remember, the first time most of the world fell into sin, God wiped out virtually all of humanity. God takes sin very seriously, very seriously. But this time, we're going to, there's going to be a Savior that is going to come from the same nation and the same lineage that God begins right here with Abram in the Old Testament. So, Abraham's now a wealthy guy. So, Abram and Lot. Abram and Lot <clears throat> was his brother's son. Now have such great wealth and numerous livestock that they have to separate so that the land can support them both. Abram give Lot, gives Lot first pick. Lot chooses the fertile Jordan Valley to the east and moves as far as the city of Sodom. Abraham settles again in Canaan. So we're back here, okay? We now have so many possessions between Abram and Lot. The land can't support them. There's a lot of people involved. Um, and Abram, rather selfish, selflessly, gives Lot first pick. And Lot chooses the fertile land for himself and journeys to a city near Sodom. <clears throat> then there's further revelation from God as Abram is settled in Canaan. Abram is to explore the land, <clears throat> and God promises to give this land to Abram and his descendants. God also promises to make Abram, Abram's offspring, as numerous as the dust. How many children does Abram have at this point since the story began? Zero. We've got none. So this, this is quite a shocker. This is your land. I'm going to give it to you and to your children. And by the way, you're going to have a lot, a lot, a lot of children and descendants. And that might have seemed strange to Abram. But God is further unfolding his purpose for him. Then we see what I'm, what I'm referring to as the Battle of Siddim. I found it referred to that way in a few texts. Four Mesopotamian kings from the west make war against five rebellious kings from the Jordan Plain. The Western powers overcome the five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
They proceed to plunder the cities and also carry away Lot as a captive. We're in Genesis 14 now. Abram, remember I said he was a rich man and that his, you know, his company was large. Abram at this point, um, he, he leads 318 trained men, so think of them as soldiers or those who are skilled in that way, from his house in pursuit and defeats the force, returning Lot and all his possessions, returning with Lot and all of his possessions. So Abraham is obviously a man of means. I don't know how many of you guys could call on 318 armed men to come to your defense. But so this is sort of, you might say, again, Abram is serving um, and Lot. Um, and first he gave him the first choice of the land. And then he goes and rescues him after there's this big battle. <clears throat> so that's a, a point that we'll develop further later. Note, quick note here. I will read, read this from the notes from you. Genesis 14, 13 is the first recorded usage of the term Hebrew in Scripture. It was used by a non-Israelite to refer to Abram. For the rest of this study, for purposes of convenience, the terms Hebrew and Israelite will be used interchangeably. I consulted one text um, by Merrill. I, I'll show you guys later the books, some of the books we're using on this, but uh, not today because we're going to get short on time. Um, and he points out that there were other ethnic groups in that region at that time who had names that might have sounded similar to Hebrew because they often refer to themselves as Israelites. And if you do the language study, so it might have just been for their own clarification. Anyway, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but again, when you hear Hebrew and Israelite interchangeably here. And now we come to a, a, a strange and important character in this narrative, Melchizedek in Genesis 14. On the way back from, <clears throat> basically, after rescuing Lot, Abram <laughs> runs into a character who's in the Old Testament referred to as Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the word literally means king of righteousness, okay? Um, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and blesses Abram. And then <clears throat> we're also told that Abram is the king of Salem, which means peace. I looked a bunch of places. I asked a lot of people. It's very, very likely that Salem is Jerusalem, okay? Well, this is interesting for a lot of reasons. We've got a king in Jerusalem He's appointed by God. And Abram, who's been the main character in our story so far, gives him a gift. Some people would say it was the first tithe ever given. A tenth of his possessions. We talked about Abraham as a wealthy, wealthy man. But when you give someone a gift, you show subservience in a way. You show respect. So here's the main character in our story who is receive, you know, who receives this. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> who, identif- who receives the king of Salem and gives him a gift. So I just think that's fascinating. Melchizedek is also identified as a priest of God Most High. This is a huge concept because we're going to be introduced to priests through Israel and through Israel's tradition and through Israel's law. Israel's priests have a lineage They're from the tribe of Levi. We'll talk about that. But we're told that Melchizedek, he just is. It says he's without beginning and without end, and yet he's a priest of God Most High. So God has appointed him a priest. He's the king of Jerusalem. God has appointed him a priest, 
Abraham thinks so much of him that he basically, you know, pays him homage and gives him a gift. This is significant because what we have here is a non-Levitical priest. That's an important point that will come back later. But basically, my thoughts on it are something along these lines. Melchizedek is one of very few... We have a few figures. Remember I said the Old Testament was Israel-centric, but not completely exclusive. There's a few people that are referred to as priests that are not from Israel in the Old Testament. Melchizedek would be one of them, okay? Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was also a priest, not an Israelite. And I think that, first of all, we need to make a connection, the non-Levitical priesthood, to Hebrews 5 and 6, where it speaks of Christ. And I will read this real quickly here for you, just to avoid confusion. Hebrews 5, I'll actually start with verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, Aaron the first high priest of Israel. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so I, we, we can't, we have to take Melchizedek seriously. He's in many ways a strange character, but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is referred to as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I think that we ought to have that connection in our mind. It's pointing forward, and it shows also ultimately that God is working through Israel, but is not limited to Israel. Um, there, there are figures in the Old Testament. Um, Job. Job may have been a contemporary of Abraham. As far as we know, Job, we don't know, but it appears he may not have been, you know, Semitic in any way. Um, it may be one of the oldest books in the Bible. We have this record. God had interpersonal, you know, contact and relations with other people. So, again... Israel becomes, God, Israel becomes God's covenant people in the Old Testament, but we don't need to think about God as only limiting his activities with man to Israel, okay? So Melchizedek is huge. I mean, just, just connecting with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's just some thoughts on that um, about Melchizedek himself. Thoughts on Melchizedek or questions? Maybe I can answer them. If I can't, I might be able to find out. Lois. Would you repeat that about Melchizedek just is when you didn't have parents? Oh, uh, yes. Um, We are told that basically he was without beginning or end. It's just a real contrast to the Hebrew priests for whom lineage was was of preeminent importance. Okay? Um, You didn't just get to be anyone in Israel, you know, couldn't be a priest. Who you were, who your family was, that was important. But Melchizedek was appointed by God. We don't know who came before him or who came after him. Book stops there. But we know that God was using him in a certain way and also setting up the concept of a non-Levitical priest in a way that would ultimately, applied, would ultimately be applied to Christ. So, yes. 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 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. I, I agree, yes. I read several things. There are many people who believe that this was sort of a, a physical manifestation of God or Christ, a theophany, I believe it's called, um, well, you know, in the Old Testament. It's an interesting idea, and there are certainly a lot of some scholars that do believe that. Um, again, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and Al's right. There are definitely a lot of people that believe that. I couldn't be dogmatic on it. Um, I asked a few people, and like, like I said, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't die on that hill, but there are certainly some people that do believe that, and it's very fascinating because he's a singular and unique character. Other thoughts on Melchizedek? Dad. Well, that's, that is another thing. That's a good point. That's another thing that makes uh, Melchizedek a little bit unique um, because <laughs> that's, not, that's not the model that we unpack later. That's that in, in Israel, not so much because Israel has a high priest and it has a king. It's not the same office. Um, I mean, both offices exist. So again, this is a, he's a unique guy. So yeah, that, I, that's a good point. That's something else that I think makes him special and different. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's amazing. And, and I, yes, and, and, I, and I don't wonder that, like, the Egyptians, if they thought about it that way, if they tracked the history, they probably didn't find it all that amusing. But, yeah, that's 100% true. Um, I went to a, a lecture a few months ago um, on an Egyptologist, and she just said one advantage Egypt has and it doesn't show real well on this map, but basically the Nile River. Um, and so it, it was sort of the breadbasket of the ancient world. Um, even when the weather was bad, because of the annual flooding of the banks of the Nile, they tended to have grain and food when not everyone else did. So in the case of, like you said, there are many reasons for it, but we see at least twice that it's a lack of food that drives Israel you know, to that area. And yeah, it's, it's a recurring theme. Out of Egypt, I called my son. You know, We see that that sets up and happens again and again. So anyway, um, yes. Oh, sorry. Didn't see you. Yeah, no, please do. That's great. Go right ahead, Greg. Yes. Which, again, like Al pointed out, some of that language, you read that, you can certainly see why some people say, whoa, you know, was this some sort of a divine appearance? But uh, could, could you say the, just so everyone has it, could you uh, say the location? Uh, Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. 
Thank you. And if I've omitted that, yeah, go ahead and write that down. That might be helpful for you. <clears throat> All right. So again, I, thanks for letting me spend a few minutes on Melchizedek there. I don't want to bog down too much, but again, a unique figure. Um, and we will move on from there. Yes. Yes. And and I think, like I said, I would encourage you to read or read on that further. There's a lot of books written on Melchizedek, and um, <laughs> it would it would definitely be worthwhile reading. So, what happens next? Well, Abram fathers a son. Remember, God has promised that he will have a huge number of descendants, but nothing yet. So. He has a son. The son's name is Ishmael. He's born to Hagar, an Egyptian slave girl, who's given to Abram by Sarai in a misguided attempt to produce an heir. This is in Genesis 16. So he did succeed in having a son. This was, you know, his wife was like, well, things aren't working. Take my slave girl. And Abraham, and again, judge Abram by what he knows at this time, okay, by the world he lived in and about how much he knew about God. Abraham's like, okay, you know, and they have a son. But God insists that it is through Abram's wife, Sarai, that the covenant offspring of the Abrahamic covenant will be born. He says that Ishmael will become a great people, but not my people, okay? You guys are familiar, have you guys ever seen um, Muslims, when they make their holy pilgrimage, you ever seen a picture of the Kaaba, the big black box, in the center of that mosque, and they all walk in circles and run around it? right? That's, um, they are mirroring Hagar's search for water in the desert. They claim that, they claim Abraham, and they claim Ishmael. They're, that's, that's their lineage, that's who they claim, and um, so that's just an interesting fact. He does become a large nation, but it is not God's intended covenant offspring. Um, so we're still waiting on that. In the meanwhile, Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroys with fire two wicked and unrepentant cities of the plain after rescuing Lot and his family. This is a short section in the notes because I feel like most of you guys have probably studied this quite a bit. But basically, um, this is just showing again the theme of God's judgment against sin. And Lot will go on through his daughters to um, spawn a couple of nations that will eventually become important antagonists of Israel. So think about it this way. Um, Some of the people that Israel will end up being in conflict with, it's almost like they're cousins. So it makes it all the worse. And and again, but again, so it's just important to know that Lot is saved. Lot escapes. His wife does not. She turns into a pillar of salt. Um, but, but there are nations created there as well and peoples that will become important in the story later. And we'll attempt to touch back on that when we get there. Next, Abraham fathers another son. Isaac is born to Sarah. Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born, which would have put his birth date somewhere around 2066 B.C. So this is huge. This is finally the son that we've been waiting for. Happened in extreme old age. This is a miraculous thing, okay? Abram has this promise. They try to sort of help God out a little bit 
With the slave girl, God's like, nope, I will, it will happen the way I want it to. It will happen when I'm ready for it to happen. And so it does, and Isaac is born. So what happens next? Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God's command. But God spares his life and provides a ram instead. In response to this and Abraham's obedience, God reiterates the Abrahamic covenant's promise of numerous offspring. Here again, strange behavior. Why Why would Abram just go along with this? Be like, I waited forever. It took me 100 years to have a son. This is the son you promised. What are we going to do? I want you to sacrifice him. And Abram, who believed God and who knew little else, specifically was like, okay, that's what God says. You know, we know, <clears throat> we know that um, from other sections of Scripture, we know that, you know, Abraham was hoping that God would raise his, raise his son back to life after the sacrifice was completed. But Abram was fully ready to carry it out, okay? And God reiterates the covenant in response to his obedience. So again, we see, we see that the rewards of obeying God... We see the punishment, Sodom and Gomorrah, for disobeying him. So Abram now has Isaac, his son, the son of promise, the son through which the nation of Israel will continue. Um, Another interesting point here, um, just that I thought was... um, We'll come back to that. Anyway, a wife for Isaac. So Sarah, Sarah <clears throat> at this point, and again, both Abram and Sarai have name changes that if you follow the text that do occur. At this point, we can say Sarah. At this point, Sarah dies. <clears throat> and Abraham sends a servant back to Mesopotamia who is charged to search among Abram's own people and find a wife <clears throat> to bring back to Canaan, because remember they're in Canaan, for his son Isaac. Rebecca returns, becomes Isaac's wife when Isaac's 40 years old. So, that, for no particular reason, is where we're going to stop here because we've only got about five minutes left. We're about halfway through. Sorry, please, first. Over here, the Fertile Crescent, this area, that's what most people would say. You might have heard it called the, the... yeah, so you've got your Tigris River up here, the Euphrates. So Mesopotamia is over in this area. And again, Abram's own people. You can see it's back in the direction from which he came. Um, but anyway, he's got a kid now. Now he wants to be a grandpa. He wants to see the, the lineage continue, so he seeks out a wife for his son. Yes. Yeah, Romans 4, again, more, more insight on Abram and his 
um, struggle with this issue and how it unfolded. That's Romans 4. I'd highly recommend to you. Um, so anyway, believe it or not, um, we're about halfway through the Genesis narrative. We will attempt to finish it up next week, and then we will crash right into Exodus. And um, so again, this is kind of how this is going to work out. And again, the notes are so you don't have to stress, okay? Also, I welcome questions. This is not infallible. It's a guide. So um, we'll always have room for your thoughts or stuff like that. It's just meant to make it easier on you. And if you have to miss a week, I, I don't want you stressing out over that. So no particular reason. We will start with Isaac, the father of Jacob, next week. And we'll move from there. There won't be as much um, other stuff. We'll go right into the text and get moving next week with less preamble. So... Any uh, questions, thoughts, questions about format or any of that kind of thing? I'd suggest a three-ring binder if you can. There may be times when I'll send out like a, uh, I'll have like a map or a chart or a, um, something that I think might be helpful for you. Again, we want to we keep the story moving, which means we can't go 20 layers deep. But my goal is to sort of move through the Old Testament, viewing it through the lens of Israel, so that we sort of can get to the end before we forget the beginning, so you can think of it as a sequential story in your mind. Anything else, guys? That's right. What's that? Yeah, um, I think I think that, that is just uh, wrapped up in God's de- uh, God's design to have a covenant people. But again, as to why Abram in particular, I think, like Al said, we, we don't we don't know. That's God's purpose. We can see what He does with Abram, and we can see that Abram was not this like perfect angelic superhuman figure. I mean, he was a mortal man, but he did respond with a great deal of faith. Um, and again, from one man. A lot will grow. So anyway, in part, in part that could be answered why God chose Israel in the first place. Yes, and I, and I have some thoughts on that, but I don't have time next week, Greg. Next week, come back. Sorry, in the back behind Greg. I thought I saw a hand. No, last chance. Oh, I ran you right up against the the time here today, guys. I will endeavor to have a short uh, time of praises and prayer requests at the end of each one. I'm trying to build in five minutes. Sorry we didn't get it done today, but I had a lot of like getting started stuff. We will try and reserve at least five or ten minutes at the event because I want you guys to pray for each other, and I want to write that stuff down. So we'll do that next time. Thank you for being here. Have a great day.